Well, a little over a year ago, last spring in mid-May, I was just starting a three-month sabbatical. And I sat alone in my favorite place on earth. It's a little hermitage crafted, like built and kind of put out in the woods by a lake for pastors and spiritual leaders to go and have some silence and solitude with the Lord. And I wrote in my journal on May 20th, 2021, I said, will I discover that I actually love God, his word, his ways, his people while I'm on sabbatical? I know that I used to, but I'm not sure that I do anymore. I've neglected my spiritual life and I've substituted for church work. Now that church work is on pause, will I discover that I still actually believe this stuff, or has it just become a job to provide a living for my family? Have I used God? Have I used the Bible and Jesus' church to attain a new American dream that I abandoned when I first felt called into ministry? If God has become a means to an end, if I'm using him, his word, and his people to get a, pay, to get a paycheck or to feed my ego— or as a platform for attention or perceived importance, I must quit. A little over a year ago, while I'm still here and preaching, obviously, I haven't quit yet, and I discovered pretty quickly that I still love God, His Word, and His church. And if I ever discover that I don't, I will quit. At least, I hope to, and I hope that we have enough people in our church and in our life that they would call me out if they sense that I'm using you or using God or using his word for anything other than the proclamation of the good news. I will quit. I hope people call me out to quit. I discovered on sabbatical that I still love God, his word, and his church, but I also realized that I had some serious, serious soul work to do, that I had been prioritizing working in the church over allowing God to work on my soul. Over this three-month sabbatical, I begin the journey of doing much-needed soul work. It's not complete. It just started 15 months ago, and I feel like I'm still on the first leg of this journey. It's, it's only beginning for me, but it's been animating everything that I've been thinking about and, and reading and praying these last 15 months. After 15 months of working through these ideas, moving towards greater intimacy, authenticity, and simplicity with God, self, and others, I've become convinced this is also what God wants for our church family. I, I took some time to really wrestle through. So God gave me these three words when I was on sabbatical. Actually, he gave me six, and I whittled them down to three because they all fit together, and it was kind of redundant. So God gave me these three words. Fifteen months ago, I, I heard God's voice, not audibly, but I, but I sensed my father drawing me into this relationship with him where he said, Andrew, I want you to rediscover your intimacy with me. I want you to be able to figure out who you are authentically, not trying to be anybody else, no other pastor, no other Christian, just you. I've created you to be you, and I want you to discover that. And, and I want you to simplify your life. I want you to declutter your life. I want you to say no to some things so that you have time for the things that are most important. Me, your family, your friends, your community, your church, let's figure that out together. And so God told me that. 15 months ago, and I, and I was working it out with him, and I, and I kept massaging this into my own soul, and I have a mentor who was meeting with me, and he said, okay, you keep talking about these things. Are you actually doing them? And I was like, no, they're just aspirational, right? They sound good, and I know God told me to move towards these, but of course I don't have time to prioritize intimacy with him. Of course I don't have time to figure out who I truly am and, and how that works out in a pastoral role. I don't have time to simplify my life. I have three kids and a job and life is busy and I have yard work to do. I can't simplify. 
And, and this mentor of mine just kept meeting with me and, and, and asking me questions and peeling back the layers and saying, okay, what does it take for you to actually move these, these values from aspirational into practical, into actually practicing them? And as I did that, and as I've stayed in relationship with our church family, as I've had deep and meaningful conversations with many of you, it's clear to me that all of us need to move towards intimacy, authenticity, and simplicity. Some of you are afraid of those words. I say intimacy, and you're like, that's a weird word. I'm not sure that I want to be intimate with anybody. I'm not sure that I want to be intimate with God. Do I really want God to be intimate? It means to be exposed, to be vulnerable, for the deepest, darkest parts of you to be seen and known. And I think a lot of our spiritual practice sometimes actually covers that stuff up and we suppress it. We push it down. We, we actually don't want to admit to God the thoughts that we have and the, and the things that we like or the things that we question or the things that we doubt. We don't want to admit that to other people. If you're married, you hold things back from your spouse. If you're dating, you hold a lot back from the person that you're dating because you hope they'll become your spouse. If you're looking to date somebody, you put the best you forward, or at least the messy version of you forward that you think people will accept. Right? We're, we're, we're scared. We're scared to be rejected. We're scared to be fully known, to remove the mask, to be fully seen, and then, and, and then to run the risk of somebody rejecting us or saying, I knew you were fake. And so some of, for some of you, this is, this is going to be a a trying series as we take the next three months and talk about intimacy, authenticity, and simplicity because you love your mask. You love the inner self that you've suppressed. I did for a long time. I still do. This is a daily battle for me. But I'm convinced that God wants us to step into this so that we become more whole. So that we see his incredible, unending, unconditional love for us. And then we start to receive love from other people. That We start to actually see that, oh, actually people love us for who we are. For who God has made us. And who God is creating us to be. And so that's where we're going this fall. And I'd love to have you join us on this journey. There is a little sheet out on the connection table in the lobby called the Soul Worksheet. The Soul Worksheet. It has different resources, it has different passages that I'm going to be preaching through this fall. It has kind of the layout of what we're going to work through as we talk about intimacy, authenticity, and simplicity. So I encourage you to grab one of those on the table in the connection lobby as you leave today. Also in the Park Weekly, this was linked. And in the Park Weekly, each week there's going to be discussion questions that you can use to go deeper on this with your community group or just in your own life or with a group of friends. And so I'd love to invite you on this journey with me. Today, as we start, we're going to talk about the invitation to and the foundation of intimacy. The invitation to and the foundation of intimacy. And here's what I want you to know as we go through this series, we're talking about intimacy, authenticity, and simplicity with God, self, and others. Today, we're mostly going to talk about intimacy with God, because that's where it starts. If we don't find, as, as believers, if we don't find true, honest intimacy with God, we're going to really struggle to find intimacy with other people. And we're not talking about just a certain form of intimacy, right? We're talking about relational in, in, intimacy, conversational intimacy, being known fully and deeply and still being loved. And so that's where we're going today. We're going to talk about the invitation to and the foundation of intimacy. It starts with, with God's call really for us 
to, to give ourselves to him. As I look at the scriptures, I see God's invitation for us, his creation, his people, his sons and his daughters, to give ourselves to him. Some of you, that sounds terrifying. Some of you, it sounds possessive. Here's what I want you to, I want to look at a couple scriptures and see God's invitation for us, though, to, to give ourselves to him. Because we all give ourselves to something. We all desire to give ourselves to something bigger and greater than ourselves. That's why people get lost in sports. That's why people get lost in politics. That's why people get lost in movements, because they want to be a part of something greater than themselves. And Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are inviting us to give ourselves to the Godhead. And so look at, I'm going to I'm not going to put these verses on the screen because I want you to flip around and see them in the Bible yourself. So if you have your own Bible, find Proverbs 23, 26. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 545 in the pew Bible. If you have an electronic device, it's not on a page. It's on a screen. Proverbs 23, 26. This is my son. Let me pause right there. If you are a female in our congregation listening to this sermon, insert my daughter. Throughout this sermon series, we want to make this personal. We need to make this personal. This, this word for son here, it's ben in Hebrew, and it does mean son. It means a male because the, the Proverbs is like a father writing to a son, instructing a son. But God is both father and mother. He has all the qualities of a father and mother, right? He created humans in his image and likeness. Male and female, he created them. God is referred to in the scriptures as a father. That's the imagery, the analogy that the scriptures take on. But all of the good qualities of all, both genders, God has. And so if you are a woman here, hear him saying, my daughter. If you are a man, hear him, God, your heavenly father, inviting you into an intimate relationship with him where he says, my son, my daughter, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. This passage really started me down this journey. As I sat at that hermitage and read different scriptures and read this passage, I, I heard God's voice saying, Andrew, my son, give me your heart. You know, my first reaction was, no. I'll give you my service. I'll give you my money. I'll give you my gifts. I'll give you whatever. My heart? And, and this Hebrew word for heart, it doesn't just mean the, the organ in your chest that, that, that pounds and pushes blood throughout your body. It means the inner man, the inner woman, the soul. The Hebrew word for heart, it, it, it's far deeper than we think about heart. It has to do with how you think and how you feel. And in our culture and context, in a lot of churches, we like to divorce those two, don't we? We have people who, we got to think, let's be rational. Let's think deeply. Let's study hard. We have people, let's, let's feel, let's experience, let's not overthink it. And this word heart, it's both. It's that. It's the whole mess of us. Our rationality and our irrationality. Our, our emotions and our feelings and our intellect and our processing and our logic. And God is saying, my son, my daughter, give all of that to me. Some of you have so suppressed your feelings and your emotions Guess what? It's time to pop that lid off. We're going to get emotional here. I hope a bunch of you are weeping at some point this fall. Maybe not here. You can if you want. But at home by yourself with the Lord and intimacy with him.
pop that emotional lid off. God here is saying, my son, my daughter, give me your everything. Give me your inner self that you've hidden, that you've suppressed, that you don't want other people to see, and, and, and that you try to perform for me. You keep doing your religious duties, trying to impress me. I don't care about that. I want your heart. I want your soul. I want face-to-face intimate conversation with you, my son, my daughter. That's God's invitation, and I love how he follows it up. Let your eyes observe my ways. As I prayed this passage through, I heard God's voice saying, Andrew, my son, give me your heart. Give me your everything. Give me your inner self, and let your eyes observe my ways. Watch what I can do with you. Watch how I will love you in the places that you feel are unlovely. Observe my ways. Watch me work. Watch me hold your heart in my hands and mend it and shape it and heal it and cure it. Watch me, my son, for I love you. Let's, let's keep going. Let's move on to Proverbs 4, verses 20 through 27. Proverbs 4, 20 through 27. On page 530, again, it starts with this address. My son, my son, my daughter. Be attentive to my words, incline your ears to my saying. Let them not escape from your sight, keep them within your hearts, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This passage, as I, as I read and reflected on this, it was like God grabbing my, my, my face, which is always looking to the side, looking around, looking for danger, trying to overcome fears, trying to see what people think of me, trying to see, okay, what does this person think? What does that person think? What does this pastor say? What does that person say? What does this politician, right? I mean, the last couple of years, we're looking all around, trying, we're gathering all this information. We're always looking about, trying to calculate, trying to figure things out, trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, what the right thing to say is. And it's like God grabbing my face, which is always just shifting, looking for the next thing. And he's saying, look at me. My kids, two of my kids in particular, have been experiencing a high level of anxiety lately. One just started kindergarten. She's three days in. And that's a big change. My little girl, Oakley, going to kindergarten. One of the mornings, she had extreme anxiety about it. And she got there and did amazing but we had to pause and say, Oakley, look at us. Your older sister, Avery's in, in the school. Your older brother, Judah, is in the school. You've met your teacher. She's great. She was your older sister, Avery's teacher. We know these people. You're going to be okay. You can do it. You know, she's worried. She's looking around, calculating all the different fears, all the different things that could happen. Oakley, listen to us. That's what God is doing here. My middle kid, Judah, he's had anxiety that hasn't corrected so easily and so quickly. And, and we've had to take him, Judah, it's going to be okay. We love you. You are loved. You are safe. We know there's scary things. We know that there's things out of our control, but we're with you. This summer, I was in the Boundary Waters with my son, Judah, and we got blown off a lake at 11.30 p.m., We weren't camping in the Boundary Waters. We were camping in Grand Marais, the town that I'm from, and we were just doing a day trip in. 
and we fished too late in the lake that we go to fish to, and then we had to make a portage, and there were white caps on the large entry lake that we go into, and we couldn't make it back. Couldn't make it back to our landing, couldn't get back to town. At one point, the wind died a little bit. We got in the canoe, and we tried to get back, and then we came around this point, and the, the wind grabbed us and pushed us three times back to shore, and so we just had to pull up on shore, and we had to camp out without any supplies. There was five of us on this trip. We had one survival blanket. I won't tell you who among the party was prepared, but one person had stuff, and so five of us underneath one survival blanket until 4.30 in the morning until it was light enough to see that we could get back to our landing. And my son was anxious, nervous. And I had to, had to take him, buddy, we're going to be okay. We're going we're to get to the shore. We're going to do everything we can to stay warm. We're going to be okay. Stop looking at the waves. Stop looking at the sky. I know we're worried it might rain. Look at, look at me. It's going to be okay. I'm with you. That's what God is doing here. My son, my daughter, be attentive. Listen. Stop fretting. Stop looking about at every concern, every worry, every possibility. Look at me. Look at me. Then he invites us in. He says, keep your heart. Remember that inner being. Keep it with all diligence, with all diligence. If you grew up in a Christian religious circle where there was, some of you have heard of this thing called purity culture. This verse was often spoken to girls, like, keep your heart, guys are going to break it, right? How many, some, I'm not going to have you show your hands, but some of you heard this verse that way. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the wellspring of life. And, and in my context, this verse was to girls. Make sure you don't, make sure you don't give your heart away to a boy because he's going to break your heart. As if boys' hearts can't be broken. And notice how it's addressed even my son. And, and, and as I was talking about this with my wife, Brittany, Here's her take. She says, men don't admit that they need to protect their hearts because they don't want to admit their weaknesses. She's not speaking about me. Other men that she knows. They don't want to be vulnerable. But a fountain of life cannot spring up from a dry and calloused heart. Right? A fountain of of life comes from something that's been tilled, soft soil. God here is inviting us, his sons and daughters, to to give him our hearts, to be attentive to his words and his ways, and to protect our inner being, to protect our souls, to do some soul work, to protect it, because we are all vulnerable. Men who who, who sometimes you want to like suppress your emotions, suppress your inner being, and just carry on and get through it, you got to pop that lid. If you want to grow with God and other people, you got to pop that lid. It's time for us to get vulnerable with God and with other people. Women, you got to be vulnerable as well. I mean, it, it, it's not a gendered issue, right, to try and want to prove ourselves to other people, to try and want to protect ourselves from other people because we get hurt when we open up. And here God is saying, protect your inner man, your inner soul, and the way that you do that is by giving your heart away to people who you can trust. You don't give your heart away to anyone. This call to intimacy, it starts with God, right? We give our heart away to God. My son, my daughter, give me your heart. That's number one. That's his invitation. Give yourself to me. And observe my ways. Watch how I can be trusted. Watch what I do with your heart. And as you begin to experience what God does with your heart, you will find other people in your life who you will begin to trust and you will begin to take steps of risk to say, okay, I'm going to give them a piece of my heart. I'm going to give them a little bit of it. Oh, they didn't hurt me. They didn't abandon me. 
They, 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 didn't, they weren't sh- ashamed of me. They didn't tell me to put the mask back on and keep pretending because they liked the pretend me more. No, they, they kept peeling back the layers. And so I'm going to give them more of my heart. I'm going to give them more of my heart. This is the call for each one of us. Part of protecting our heart is giving it away to people who can be trusted with it. And I love this passage as it continues to just go on. Verse 25, let your gaze look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Stop looking around at all of life's worries and concerns. God, God, the Heavenly Father, grabbing your face. My son, my daughter, look at me. It's like a coach. If some of you go watch football today, well, maybe not in professional football because there's too much money and pride and ego there, but in college football, like, coach will grab the face mask. Look at me. I got to tell you something. Or, or some of you, like, ladies are pretty good with face-to-face conversations and relationships. Guys, not so much. We use these phrases like shoulder-to-shoulder, elbow-to-elbow because we don't actually want to be intimate with each other. Right? We actually, guys, you need to learn to get face-to-face with some other guys. That may start by being shoulder-to-shoulder and elbow-to-elbow, but at some point, you got to turn face-to-face. Women, generally speaking, are a little bit better at this. Not always, but generally speaking, And so if the coach analogy of grabbing the face mask and looking you in the eye doesn't resonate with you, think about like a coffee date or having a tea with a friend, right? You're sitting face to face. You're having a conversation. You're peeling back the layers. That's what God is saying. Let let your eyes look directly before you. Your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, and then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left turn your foot away from evil. One more here in this topic of invitation. Let's flip over to Matthew chapter 11. Let's hear Jesus's invitation from his own mouth. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, And how fascinating even here that Jesus' relationship with God, that he's addressing him as Father, right? That's an intimate relationship. Some of us, great relationships with fathers. Some of us, really bad relationships with fathers. And the reason a father can have such a positive or negative impact with us is because it's a relationship designed for intimacy. Same with mother. These relationships are designed for intimacy. And God here with Jesus, here with God, is addressing him as Father, this intimate relationship relationship. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for, your, for such was your gracious will. See how Jesus here, it, throughout the Gospels, he, he says, he calls for us to have faith like a child. He's saying the, the wise and the understanding of the age, the deep things of God, the inner workings of the soul have been hidden from them. But those who trust God like a child, these things will become more clear. Those who are willing to take off the mask and not put on a facade of pride and knowledge and intellect or whatever your area of pride is, those who are willing to leave their pride at the door and address God as Father because we are dependent children, and those who are willing to have childlike faith will begin to experience the inner, deeper life that God has for us. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus calls us to have childlike faith. Now, childlike faith isn't childish faith that fails to ask questions or to go deep. It doesn't stay on the surface. That's not childlike faith. Childish faith stays on the surface. Childlike faith, it it goes deep. It asks hard, hard questions. And as it does, it's faith that goes deep by prioritizing intimacy over information. 
time abiding with God over just new theological facts about God. It prioritizes relationship with God, not information about God. That's childlike faith. That's what Jesus is saying here. Those who are like little children, these things will be revealed to you. It it prioritizes trust over self-reliance. Dependence, like we sang this morning. Dependence on God over dependence on self. Some of us have been so shaped by the American culture and American psyche that we think we're independent, we think we've got this, we, we think we can be self-reliant, we can pull ourselves, by our, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. You cannot. And if you do for this life and you die apart from Christ, you will see that it was all a waste. And so childlike faith is dependence on God. It's trusting God over self. Childlike faith prioritizes being with God over doing for God. It doesn't mean we don't do anything for God, but our, our doing for God needs to overflow from our being with God. Jesus is saying, such are those who have childlike faith. This will be revealed to them. Yes, Father, this is your gracious will. Pick it up again at verse 27. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone who comes to the Son chooses to, chooses to reveal him. Intimacy requires knowledge, deep knowledge, not, not head knowledge, soul knowledge, heart knowledge, inner being knowledge, relational knowledge and intimacy. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Father, no one knows the Father except the Son, and the Son, anyone who chooses to reveal him. When we enter into the life of faith, we enter into this deep, relational, intimate knowledge of the Godhead. And that's how we grow in our faith, is by getting to know God more and more and more with our heart. That does mean thinking, that does mean logic, that does mean reason, that does mean theology, but it also means emotion, experience, trust, peeling back the layers. So Jesus is welcoming us in, and then verse 28, he says, come to me. Listen to that invitation from the mouth of Jesus. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is inviting us to come. And and I want you to notice here in this passage that the rest that he gives is for the soul, right? He says that directly in verse 29 and you will find rest for your souls. Here's the reality in this life. Our, our hands are always going to be tired and weary. There's a lot to do. There's a lot that beats us down. There's a lot that wears us out. But Jesus invites us to bring our inner being to him, and he will give us rest. This doesn't just mean perpetual vacation here on earth. You still have to work Life's still going to work you over, beat you down, wear you out, tire you out. But, but he wants to invite us into this place where we have this intimate face-to-face relationship with him where we can go out into the world that's beating us down, that's wearing us out, that's always demanding, and we can have a soul that is full so that our identity doesn't have to be wrapped up in all the things of life that wear us down and beat us up and tire us out but he will give us rest. That's the invitation from God. As we close down this morning, I just want to look at the foundation real quick. And so the invitation is, give yourself to me. 
the foundation of our intimacy with God is, is his voice saying, I have given myself to you and for you. You can give yourself to me. You can trust me. You can give me your heart because I have given myself to you and I've given myself for you. Two verses that I want to look at for this in, in these two ideas of covenant and communion, right? God has given himself to us and for us. The, the, the foundation of intimacy, theologically speaking, is God's covenant with us as people. His covenant means that he calls out to us, he initiates with us. And communion, God comes to us, or he incarnates Jesus, God in flesh, he comes to us. So look at Jeremiah 31 with me. Jeremiah 31, verses uh, 31 through 34. This is a prophecy from the Old Testament about the new covenant, the new covenant made in Jesus. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. Hear that intimate language? I was their husband. This relational commitment, connection, this covenant made to one another, though they broke it. So this covenant remains unbroken. It's not a contract. It's not, if you do this, I will do this. God makes a covenant with his people and says, in spite of what you do, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a covenant. God says, I made this covenant with them, though they broke it, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Pick it up in verse 33. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Again, this word knowledge is not just mental assent. It's deep inner trust from, yes, information, but information that's been tested and experienced because we've actually opened ourselves up and we've trusted the one who the information is about. And when he says that no longer will anyone teach, it's this idea that the Holy Spirit comes in the new covenant and takes up residence in us, God's people, and you have the Holy Spirit in you. You don't need me or another pastor or another prophet to mediate between you and God. You have God living within you. You have an intimate relationship with God. You need to discover it, foster it. Now, teaching and preaching is still important, but we're not dependent on it because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. He says, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the foundation of our intimacy with God. That he says, I will be their God, they will be my people. And so we grow in intimacy with God when we begin to trust him. And we say that God has made a covenant with me. He said he will never leave me or forsake me. He is my God. I am his son. I am his daughter. Therefore, I can begin to remove the mask. I can begin to open up my heart. I can begin to expose myself to him because he's not going anywhere. And isn't that one of our greatest fears in life? If people truly knew me, they would leave me. And God here clearly is saying, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am your God. You are my people. I'm not going anywhere. Amen? Oh, how your soul needs that. We need God's invitation and foundation for intimacy. And as we close down this morning, 
And if you're curious, this, this passage from Jeremiah 31 is repeated in Hebrews chapter 8, where it talks about this being a new covenant, that Jesus ushers in this prophecy from Jeremiah 31, where it says this new covenant will come, and the Holy Spirit will be upon God's people. We are living in that era. God has given a new covenant to his people, where he said, my spirit will reside in you, and I will not abandon you, no matter how dark it gets. No matter how tricky and sticky your sin, if you are in me, you are my son, you are my daughter, I'm going nowhere. And then the second piece of foundation is communion, where God comes to us. He incarnates himself with us. And listen to what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. As he's sitting with the disciples, verse 14, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table. Communion? The first Lord's Supper. Now, communion, that's a theological word for God with his people. God present, dwelling among his people. It's not a word for some elements, right? We, we use this word for these elements. That we take communion, right? We come to the Lord's table. It's a reminder that God came to dwell among us, to incarnate himself with us. And, and listen to this passage. When, when the hour came, he reclined at table. This was a long, slow, drawn-out, intimate meal where Jesus with, was with his disciples for, four, for hours. And they had four glasses of wine. And if you have a problem with alcohol, don't have four glasses of wine. But I want you to notice here, it's, it wasn't a rushed thing like in a church building, like we've got to hurry up and get out because there's coffee and donuts in the parking lot. Now we're going to do that this morning because that's actually part of communion, right? Part of being together, having intimacy with each other as a church family is creating time and space for us to be together. But in this setting, it wasn't just a, a, a worship experience and a tradition. It was Jesus sitting with his disciples, reclining at table, creating time and space for intimacy with his followers. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Did you see that language? It wasn't theological. It was relational. I have earnestly desired to be in this space with you, to have this time with you. Peter, James, John, Andrew, I see you. I want to be with you. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he gave him thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he's saying, I'm, I'm doing this the last time with you. And Jesus is actually abstaining from this meal until we're with him in glory. But he tells us to do it in remembrance of him. Then verse 19, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, You notice how there's two cups there? Like, usually we use the Matthew passage because it's clear. He has the bread and then the cup, and that's our system, that's our process. But this meal was long and drawn out, four glasses of wine, a lot of food, not just a stale old cracker. And it's this intimate communion between God in flesh and his creation. And so he takes a cup, they drink it, he breaks the bread, he gives it to them, saying, this represents my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 20, likewise, afterward, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. 
he's taking those words from Jeremiah 31 where God says that you will be my people and I will be your God and I will remember your sins no more. And Jesus comes and he says, this is that act. I am that man. I am God in flesh, giving you God's forgiveness, creating an intimate connection and relationship with you that cannot, will not ever be broken. No matter what you do, no matter how you kick and scream, no matter how you run away from me, I will not let you go. My son, my daughter, give me your heart and enter this space with me because I love you. Amen? And so when we come together as a church family, we take communion as an act of remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Today we're going back to a way that we did communion pre-COVID. Amen. Woo! It's been two and a half years that we've been ripping those little packets. And so today we have two stations up here in the front, one in the back. The worship team is going to lead out with the song. And this is a chance for the body of Christ to move to the table, to meet Jesus through the elements, to remember who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that he is the new covenant that his body was given for us, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. I'm going to pray, and then if you are a believer in Jesus, it doesn't matter what denomination, what background, if you believe Jesus, you're welcome at the table. I ask that you, that you come down the center aisle and then go back in the outer aisle. There's also a station there in the back, and, and if you don't want to take communion, it, it's going to get a little bit awkward, right? The pews are tight, and you'll have to let people pass you. That's okay. We're a family. Just tap each other on the shoulder excuse me, and then come back. You can figure it out. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I thank you for desiring intimacy with us. I thank you for creating intimacy with us. I thank you for the invitation. Lord, even as we take communion this morning, I pray that all of us gathered here to get today that we would hear your voice. My son, my daughter, give me your heart. Give me yourself pray that we would be reminded of the foundation, the covenant that you made with us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so as we come to the table this morning, I pray that it would be a reminder of your covenant faithfulness to us, your unconditional, unending, never giving up, unbroken love for us. Jesus, may you help us to trust you May you lead us on a journey of greater intimacy, authenticity, and simplicity with you, with ourselves, and with others. For your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.